Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of Jira, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline. How can we help? Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, as we know, the answer is always yes. This week on The Hotline, we're talking all about families and the narratives that we write for ourselves within them. I'm joined by writer, academic, and author of the new memoir, No Matter Our Wreckage, Gemma Carey. Gemma, welcome to The Hotline. Can I ask you to describe for listeners, uh, as you will no doubt be doing across numerous Zoom and literary events, what the book is about? So I I describe it, I think, a little bit differently to um, the publishers do. So I sort of say that it it tells two intertwined stories. One is the story of me um, watching and caring for my mother as she died at a relatively young age. My mum died in her early 60s. It's young these days. Uh, And it's interwoven with a story of when I took a man to court for child sexual abuse when I was 17 uh, and how those two things came to sort of collide in my life at a point Um, where my mother became terminally ill and how I sort of dug into and sorted out these multiple layers of interlocking, complicated grief around those two stories. I had to say that because my mother died as well of cancer in her late 50s and um, it's odd. I really liked the way that you described grief at the end and the way that grief doesn't have a set linear path that you know, you talk about getting three days grief leave from work, but that it's not like on day three you're ready to go back to work because grief hits you in, in different spots. And you describe the moment that you and your sister go to the beach and scatter your mother's ashes in the ocean. And it reminded me of when we did that with our mother and, um, you know, it was this very sombre event and we sort of, my dad kind of unscrewed the lid on the canister of ashes and started to shake the the ashes out into the ocean. 
And then you realize that a body just has a lot of bloody ashes to it. It takes a really long time to scatter an entire body. And I know that there's a, a clunky metaphor in there for, the, for you know, the, the wreckage, as you say, that we leave behind. But did you have moments of that kind of catharsis in writing the book where, you know, people would assume that it's the, sort of this um, quite intense slog through your own personal grief and trauma, but you have to find moments of levity. Absolutely. And I think there there is quite a few of them in the book. And yes, we had that absolutely same shared ashes moment where actually my sister and I were in the ocean and we just started laughing, going like, oh my God, they keep coming <laughs> and they're getting all over us. And you, it's not what you picture in your mind or what you see in the movies where it's beautiful, you know, we just scatter them. It's actually, yeah. And they're chunky too, right? Um, yeah, it's, yeah, not quite what you expect. And there are lots, there are lots of moments like that in the in the book, and some that didn't make it into the book. One of my, um, you know, because when people are dying, like yes, it's sad, and it, you know, you're grieving, and you're grieving, and it's for a long period of time, and it's complicated. But there's also really weird, hilarious things that happen. This one isn't in the book, but I think you'll appreciate it, Claire. Which is, my mum was often um, very, very high uh, on different forms of cancer meds. And she said to me one time, my mama was very, very prudish, and she said to me, you don't wax all your pubic hair off, do you? I said, no, mum, I don't. And she patted me and she said, I'm so pleased, I'm so pleased. And honestly, she looked at me with more pride in that moment than I think she had in my whole life before that. <laughs> it was hilarious, and it only happened because she was off her face. Um, and there, so there are these little funny moments you have in all of that that you actually end up cherishing afterwards as well. I want to go back to the beginning of the book because you describe, uh, I don't know how, into how much detail you want to talk about the experience that you had with David, the man who ended up taking to court. I mean, obviously you've written about it, but I'm aware that discussing these things over and over can be very traumatising and triggering for people like you who've written it down on the page. Uh, so I'll be guided by you in that. But uh, one of the things that I wanted to touch on, um, so this is just speaking generally, the abuse started when you were 12 and a man twice your age would sneak into the house and uh, abuse you. Um, but as you say in the beginning of the book, it's not as simple as that because there were complex feelings involved or complex issues involved that, you know, to do with really like what it's like to be socialised in a patriarchy and how you respond to attention like that. And I found that very interesting and compelling and I was so glad that you articulated that because it's something that's not often spoken about, that one of the, one of the things that contributes, I suppose, to the guilt that survivors are made to feel later on or, or feel like they need to absorb or do absorb because of patriarchy is because when things happen like that to you, you're not quite sure how to sort your feelings out. Absolutely. And I don't, not to cast, you know, anything negative on other survivors who have written stories. What I, what I didn't see in things that I read and what I needed to see when I was a lot younger and, and hadn't, you know, had quite so much time to reflect on things like patriarchy and, and how we position um and talk about and think about 
survivors of abuse, which is often that we do put some degree of responsibility on them, even if they were 12 years old and they're a child, um, was that you, it is perfectly normal and part of the grooming and part of the abuse is that they will make you want them and you will end up, and a lot of people do, end up either, you know, I describe it in the book as I, I courted my own abuser. I, I tried to pull him back into my life at times that he drifted away, presumably to abuse other women and children. I, you know, there was pleasure for me in the abuse. And that becomes incredibly complex and, and really messes you up later on in life when you're trying to sort out, but well, I was a victim, but hang on, was I, I was also willing because I, I, I was, I had agency in this. Um, and I think it took me many, many years to really understand that it didn't matter what society told me about um, my role in it. I was fundamentally a child and therefore I, yes, I had agency, but I didn't have, you know, my brain was developing. I didn't know what it was that I was doing. Um, and that is part of the grooming and that is part of the abuse as well. And I think oh. that... Um, I wish I had read text that unpacked that when I was younger so I might have not carried quite as much shame and blame with me because what a lot of, certainly what I was told, and I imagine other people get this as well, is even well-intentioned people would sort of say things like, well, you were a reckless child and you were this and you were that, and it's positioned about something about you um, that put yourself in the path of somebody who was going to do this to you. But you're a child. You didn't, you didn't know that do that knowingly you did that because you're responding to a set of circumstances around you whether that is your family whether that is male gaze patriarchy looking for attention and not knowing what good attention is from bad attention like you're just too young to have sorted those things out for yourself um and i think as well that people don't people who make those arguments uh are not only being incredibly unhelpful and you know lacking any kind of cognizance about how grooming works, but how child development works as well, but also really ignorant of the reason that people do this, you know, the reason like someone like David can do this so well is because they know what they're doing. You know, people who groom children, they don't, it's like the same frog in the boiling water scenario. You know, last week on the podcast, we talked about um, domestic abuse and relationships and, and the presumption from people on the outside that, well, why doesn't she just leave? As if it's ever that simple, you know, as if some, somehow you turn up on your first date with someone and all of the domestic abuse that they will subject you to later on is laid out on the table along with the bread. Uh, but that's not how it works, as, as you know, that it's people identify something in you and they slowly groom it. I mean, you say at the start of the book that you didn't have a language for grooming until you were in your own early 20s and, and it, something clicked in you and you realised that's what happened to me. Um, and I think that that's the, the same for a lot of people who've had similar experiences on a, on a, to a degree, you know, whether or not quite as extreme as yours or more extreme, that there is a sense at some point of recognising that maybe for the previous 10 or 15 years you've been interpreting something totally differently to to the way that it actually happened. And I think also that you can hold those conflicting things at once. So there was a part of me that knew this person's definitely done something wrong and I'm taking him to court and I'm, I'm seeking justice. 
but that didn't mean that there wasn't also um I wasn't holding these feelings of yeah but also part of it is that I put myself in that position and I was a reckless you know kid and blah 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 and I did do these things um that meant that I was I was prey and and what I sort of also tried to sort out and unpick through the start of the book is that um you know we are talking about a child so if there is a child who is in you know vulnerable to being groomed it's not going to be innate qualities of that child that means that's the case it's going to be about their context they're coming from in my case it was my family context but it could be you know a different set of things and i think too often um we've put the analysis and i and i did this when i was young i, I put all the analysis and, and the questions and the blame on the man who did it like why did you do this thing why did you pick me to do this thing to? And it took me till my mum started to die to go, oh, this happened actually because of dynamics within my own family and in my own childhood that meant that I was um, probably a bit more open to being groomed by an abuser than some other child might have been. You also observe that within your family dynamic, you had a, a sense at 12 of not mattering. And when you say not mattering, you don't mean simply I didn't matter you, you mean physically there was no sense of matter to you that you existed in extension to your parents uh, which I think is a familiar feeling for a lot of children and adults reflecting on their childhood um, this idea that that you you're an, you're a limb somehow and that the limb has to move the way that the body wants the limb to move and if you don't then you're an inconvenience and you you Reflect on that and you write, even at 12, I attracted the gaze of older men. Early puberty helps with this. And in this gaze, I finally mattered. I was not an inconvenience or a disappointment. I was more than the difficult dyslexic child of academics. Desired and valued are easily conflated if you're young and alone. They would continue to be conflated for me for many years to come. My abuse started a pattern, confusing of mattering with male desire. Over the years, I've danced in the light of so many... So many men's desires near and far, thinking that it meant I mattered, but I didn't matter. And from where I stand now, neither do any of those men. And it's such a great, true observation to open the book with, because I think that in you know in ref in reflecting on how patriarchy plays a role in these dynamics and how patriarchy enables abusers and not not even necessarily in some cases abusive people, but just men to exploit um, situations, even with other adult women, this idea that somehow women and children come to life under the gaze of men is very pervasive and it fucks so many of us up. And it takes such a, for me, it took such a long time to really break that down. I think it took all the way into my late twenties to not to, to finally stop conflating someone wants to have sex with me or someone finds me attractive with, that means that I'm valuable and matter in the world. Actually, these two things have nothing to do with each other at all. It's like we put a weight when, you, when you're young, when you've absorbed a lot of um, kind of, you know, male gaze, patriarchy, dynamics i think you can put just so much weight on that idea of being sexually desired by somebody um far greater weight than you might put on lots of other things in your life that mean that you matter like your friendship mm. for example mm. it's interesting because i was 
discussing this with a friend of mine recently who exhibits some of those same or has has the echoes of some of that same learning, you know, that if someone desires you, then it ascribes value to you. Even if you don't desire them in return, that to be wanted is so is still so persuasive. Uh, and for me personally, um, I mean, my my life hasn't been as no woman's is has not been free of, you, you know, it's not not been fault free. Um, but I think because my personal experience of adolescence was largely that I didn't, I wasn't, you know, conventionally desirable, and I didn't experience the weight of men's desire. So I uh, I sort of absorbed things in the other way where I which is not great either, I just assumed that I was completely purposeless to men to the point now that <clears throat> even as a, you know, a 39-year-old woman, I, it's not that I mistrust men's desire. It's just that if it, if it exists, it's somehow strange and weird to me and I don't feel comfortable with it because I don't trust the existence of it because why, why like you carry all of those echoes of childhood. Why would you like me? Like, no one's ever liked me. What, what's wrong with you? That kind of thing, which is fucked up. Like, and obviously everyone needs to go to therapy. So my friend t- talks to me about being swayed by men's desire for her now as an adult woman. We both use dating apps. So if, if a man is, if a man desires to her, she immediately responds to that, begins to play this role of the ingenue, the, the, the object of the male desire without necessarily interrogating her own desire within that. I think for me, one of, the, one of the silver linings has been that I don't know how to play that role because I've never been expected to play that role. It doesn't quite transpire in the same way. Does that make sense? We kind of carry these things through. Yeah, it does. And it's probably one of those things like the grass is always greener, but I'm here going, oh, I wish I had that echo, not this echo. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, you know, you spend your whole life feeling the male gaze is so is so pervasive and you can do all of the feministing that you want and you can unpack it all and want to be free of it but there's a reason that patriarchy has been successful for so many thousands of years and it's because it teaches us all to want it one of the really kind of like big moments where um that hit me on another level uh, and this is in the book, was was when the Me Too was kind of at its height and everybody on Facebook and on Twitter was talking about their own Me Too movement. And um, this friend of mine who is, like, I, I genuinely cannot emphasise how incredible and how accomplished she is. She works with one of the world leaders um, that us lefties admire the most. And I can't say the role, you'll know who she is. But when she put on Facebook, I'm, I'm trying to think about moments um, where I've had a Me Too moment where I've been abused or mistreated in some kind of sexual way and I can't think of one and I just feel really unattractive. And I was yeah. just like, Jesus Christ, even, you know, this just the most incredibly accomplished, top of her game, incredible woman, like the kind of woman that we all look up to still carries that in her. Like it just... Mm-hmm in so deep it does get in deep and the it teaches us to see ourselves through that lens and to dismiss any and all of our achievements unless we have the the one pinnacle of achievement which is you know as I said earlier a man to look at us and bring us to life with the power of his desire it's almost do you do you think that 
there is actually a phenomenon of the more accomplishments that a woman has professionally and the more uh, the more achievements she can kind of rack up, the less likely she is to feel desirable because that's also what patriarchy does to us is that it, if we can stand on our, own, on our own two feet and be our own saviours, then somehow we've we've missed the point. Quite possibly. I also think, you know, and this is something that, so I have a very successful career outside of writing as an academic. Um, and and I certainly have attracted in my life a lot of men who say, you know, they want to be with somebody who's smart and all of that. Uh, what they actually want is to get into that relationship and tear you down and make you smaller and smaller. Um, and that, that dynamic has played out. So I went from kind of, yeah, the batting my eyelids young thing playing into the male gaze to right I am smart accomplished I can do what I want in the world and men still were trying to diminish me Mm. that's very common and when you said that actually I had it was like being punched in the gut the the recognition you know that and and once again you know similarly to the grooming you don't you don't realize that you're you don't realize that it's begun until you're in the middle of it because it happens so slowly. Yeah, and it's right there with the frog in the boiling water of abuse. Like it is another form of abuse. And um, this is 100% not my, my current beautiful partner who does nothing but celebrate my success, but previous partners, uh, who they'll celebrate it, they'll be in awe of it at the start, and then they'll just begin to pick on you and pick on you. And all of it is actually about the fact that they are threatened to be with a woman who might be more accomplished or smarter than them or and therefore threatening to them but it creeps in in that same insidious way i was talking with a friend of mine who's been on the podcast before teddy dunn i was talking with him recently about how one of the things we don't discuss in regards to patriarchy is men's fear of other men i mean we sort of know broadly that men can be afraid of other men but in in discussing in discussing patriarchy as a system under which women quite often live in fear for di- for different reasons and in different weights of fear, one thing we should also say is that, and men experience this fear of other men too, of men's violence, of men's judgment, of men's uh, ostracization, of the emasculation that they experience at men's hands. And that really what we're talking about here is a function uh, or partly a function of that fear, that if you are a man you absorb lessons about the kind of relationship you should have in which your in, in a heterosexual partnership your your female partner should just be ever so slightly below you so that you maintain power and prestige in the eyes of other men so that no one ever asks you who wears the pants in your family or she's got you under the thumb or you're pussy whipped or whatever it is all of these labels that we have for strong women in relationships that suggest that that the men who want to be with strong women can never be strong and unthreatened themselves but must be oppressed mm. in some way. Yeah, and it's still like what you said about being like just under, I think for me it's still about being the right ornament on somebody's arm. Yeah. Um, and for some, you know, I think you might get men who want a woman who will cook their dinner and stay, you know, and be that very traditional thing. Or you get men who seek out people like me and probably people like you who are like, well, I want to be with somebody who 
um, you're smart and blah, blah, blah. But actually, I think some of them, what they're seeking is I want someone who shines a good light on me. Mm. But it still puts them in a higher position. And you're absolutely right. Well, what are they responding to? They're responding to social pressures around what it is to be in a relationship and what it is to be a man. Like that's not something innate in them either. And it's that thing of, um, you know, patriarchy doesn't serve women, but Jesus Christ, it doesn't serve men either. Mm. Mm. So just before we get to the questions, uh, I guess, and this is a huge question to ask before, you know, to, to wrap up. Sorry, so I apologise. Please take as long as you like to answer it. In in writing this book and in wrestling not only with the grief of your mother's death but also, I guess, kind of exercising some of the demons that that we all have in regards to family but, the, but that are specific in your circumstances in regards to uh, your experience as a child and your mother's response to that experience, where are you at now in terms of that, in terms of using writing and in terms of using literary tools to, uh, I guess, write a different ending for yourself or write a way out of the, the feelings? Uh, that's a really good question because I, I, I've gone on to have many other tragedies in my life since I kind of closed that chapter off with the book. Um, and I'm always want to say to people who are going to read the book, like it's going to rattle you emotionally, but you'll be put back together at the end, I promise. And you will be at the end of the book. But life goes on and other things have happened to me since then. Um, and I never really wrote outside of academia. I never wrote um, like narrative nonfiction before I did this book. And I think picking that up uh, as another practice has given me somewhere else to to sort through things. So I tend to write, I'm working on another book now, I've written lots of essays for other places, and I've realised that the times that I come to the page to do that kind of writing are when I need to muddle something through and figure it out for myself, um, a set of emotions or something really hard that's happened. Um, and I, it's given me a way to do that that I think has enabled me to resolve things quicker and more fully um, for myself and, and, and begin to move on a bit than I ever did have before I would write about it. Uh, so I think that writing's become a way of survival for me. Um, I wish I found it younger, but anyway, I've arrived when I've arrived um, and it helped an awful lot. And some of the, I said earlier that I'm a huge fan of your writing, which I am, and some of the essays that you've written for The Guardian uh, on, on different difficult topics have been incredibly moving. And I relate very strongly to what you're saying about, you know, finding that, um, finding that, not closure, but that survival within writing. And for me, I'm interested to know if this is similar to you. For me, being able to, inhabit a literary voice that and and assume an audience for it is not only a way of framing what it is that's happened to you or, or whatever that may be but it, for me it 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 actually does erect a protective barrier between me and the story or me and the experience it almost turns it into a character in itself 
I think so. And I find it interesting that some people have said, um, even about pieces in The Guardian, which I don't find as personal as this book, and for listeners who haven't read those, they're about being pregnant in climate crisis in the bushfires, they're about having miscarriages. Um, And people have said, oh, my gosh, I wouldn't be able to admit those things to my friends, let alone put it on a page. Uh, which is something I just don't relate to at all because actually putting it on the page in, you know, what is actually quite a considered and often analytical way, even if it's written like a nice narrative, what's behind it is very analytical and and you've done a lot of sorting and putting things in their rightful place to get to a point that you can write that, Um, does mean that, yeah, you've sorted through it. You've got that buffer, you know where you stand on it and that those things, for me at least, they only exist in the world because I'm okay with them now. Um, and by being ready to put them out to other people is sort of fortifying for me as well. So I completely agree with that. You know, going back to the start of your book, I very strongly related to this idea of being an extension of parents and and having all of these unspoken rules in the house, you know, and to come from like an ostensibly happy home, but to also have all of these expectations. And, you know, in my house, one of the, one of the things that was sort of quite openly, well, not openly, it was just, it was just made known that we didn't want to share too many of our deepest emotions, that we could share happiness and laughter and we could sing together and we could play cards together and we could have this illusion of, you know, a completely functional family. But you could never sit down and say, you've really upset me in this behavior because you'd be told to get over it. Um, so for me, I find it very difficult to sit down face to face with people I love and kind of metaphorically cut myself open and bleed before them. Whereas bleeding before an audience of, you know, a thousand strangers, no problem. Yeah. Bleeding on the page is fine. Bleeding in person is horrible. <laughs> to be believed is so powerful for survivors and to have that acknowledgement is, you know, paramount. Anyway, shall we get to the questions, Gemma Carey? Please note my disclaimer that neither Gemma nor I are professionally trained doctors, counsellors or therapists. We're just two women with a little thing called life experience who like to bleed onto the page. I could really use some big sister advice in regards to my mother and her constantly undermining me in regards to my teenage son. My mother was heavily involved in my son's care for the first four years of his life as I experienced a lot of really traumatic things in those years, domestic abuse, sexual assault, stalking, and a lot more. I did not handle things well at the time. I developed an eating disorder, I overworked to avoid home, and I partied way too much. Since then, I've gotten my life together and I'm now a very responsible mother and provider but I do suffer from PTSD as a result. My son is now 15. He has ADHD and is a lot to handle. So was I at his age. He started to fall in with the wrong crowd and run away from home frequently. A year ago, as an act of desperation, I sent him to my mother an hour away and then I joined him with his younger brother a couple of months later. Since then, I've been in a non-stop battle with my mother. She sees everything through a lens of me being a total fuck-up who is always in the wrong, regardless of the fact that I haven't been a fuck-up since my early 20s. When I set boundaries that my son doesn't like, he runs off and my mother opens her door to him and lets him stay there instead of sending him home. If I take away his phone privileges, she gives him her phone. 
She either finds a loophole to my wishes or just flat ignores them. She shows him my messages, lets him listen in on phone calls, questions my parenting choices and demands that I explain myself. But when I do, she accuses me of quote unquote justifying my actions because apparently I can't tell my son no without a reason that she deems fair. When I've tried to talk to her or get her to see my point of view, she tends to bring up the past and it's pretty clear to me that she misunderstands the past as me, quote, having a wacky do time, as she puts it. She doesn't seem to understand the trauma I was going through at the time. Instead of being supportive and creating a consistent environment for my son, she's instead created me versus them environment. I'm not sure if this is too long. It probably is. Unfortunately, none of my problems are short-winded ones. Gemma Carey. I related to this listener and their story so much because I am totally the family fuck up. And like, I am the family fuck up, even though I'm in my mid thirties and I own a house and I have four degrees and I'm a goddamn professor. I am still the family fuck up. Right. So I just think you get these family narratives that get so established and ingrained when you're young and just like your listener you know I still live with her you're the wild out of control daughter um even though in my case you know and it sounds similar um being out of control was actually a young woman responding to a bad environment going back to my book I tell a story about how my mum would tell people this story that she loved and thought was hilarious that every time my parents um wanted to hug each other and I was there I would run up and push between them and get a hug as well my mum would tell this story like it was the funniest thing ever. Like Gemma was such a needy, demanding child. She wouldn't even let her parents hug. And I started saying things, I just really calmly go, oh, I actually used to do that because I didn't feel secure and loved as a child. <laughs> and you just get like stony silence, right, as the kind of shock of the truth of that statement that you wouldn't, you know, you would never have been said was said. Um, and And I would kind of like, back down story by story by story of the, which was different embodiments of that same family narrative of you are this and you were that and you'll always be this particular problematic child and now I I don't actually bother countering any of that I just go oh yeah there it is again people will throw you the ball right and in this case for this person it's the ball of like you know you're the family fuck up and you don't throw you don't catch it and throw it back. You just put it down and you put it down and you put it down and stop engaging with it. Mm. It's so true that this narrative gets set and, uh, you know, families write these stories for themselves to present to other people. And uh, so it seems to me from, you know, speaking to friends who've gone through tumultuous times with their own families or who have troubled relationships with their parents, that a lot of it does come back to this idea that, you know, families write a story and if you refuse to play the part that you're somehow being disruptive or, um, you know, it's interesting the, the, the story that you tell about your parents kind of saying, oh, this hilarious thing that Gemma used to do. And part of that is about exhibiting to other people, isn't it? It's showing off kind of parents you are it's showing off the kind of family you are we write stories too for ourselves but one of the things that I hated was being defined by this idea of who I was in the family system you know I was the young the youngest I've always been the most outspoken I'm I'm the one who causes trouble at Christmas dinner you know and I and why can't I just leave things alone etc 
And then when you say like, well, this is who I am inside. This is, these are my emotions. Oh, get over it. You know, bloody ridiculous. You know, there's nothing more disempowering. I find, well, obviously there's lots of disempowering things, but one of the most disempowering things I've found throughout my life, and it hasn't just come from my family, but it's, it's telling someone something and having them say, you're imagining it or you've interpreted it incorrectly or you're overreacting, all of that stuff that women experience you're all the overreacting. time. Overreacting, yes. That, yeah, that's overreacting. Yeah. It feels to me like with this little sister that what's happening is, uh, you know, a complex maelstrom of issues, some of which may be to do with her mother's core personality and the way that her mother obviously responded to trauma that she experienced as a child and as a young adult, which was not great. Um, and not a great response clearly from mum there, but that she feels some ownership over this son because she was so heavily involved in his life in the first four years and probably, rightly or wrongly, feels resentment at having to give that up because in a way maybe she sees him more as her child rather than her grandchild or more she wants to believe herself more responsible and more capable um, and hasn't allowed any space for this woman to recover from the choices that she made in her youth, which lots of young people make choices and, and lots of women respond to the things that have been done to them by making certain choices or by, by um, you know, processing that trauma in a particular way. And she says that she's got PTSD, so she's, she's clearly still processing a lifelong trauma. I would suggest that the first thing, little sister, if you're listening, the first thing that you you need to get your mother on board with doing is going to some counselling. If you can face having counselling with her and having a third party who is able to mediate that conversation between the two of you so that any kind of recriminations or accusations or blame is is able to be diffused in a way that you can hopefully have a real conversation with each other and you can explain yourself to your mother and sort of have someone else force her to listen. I think I'm so much more cynical because I know that with my own mother and even my ther- my psychologist would say, don't ever even bother bringing her in. I can't get through to someone like that. Um, mm. But also just not setting yourself up for expectations that, that something transformative will happen. Um, mm. But sometimes people in our family just are emotionally limited in a way that is hard and it disappoints us and we wish that we weren't and we have to find, like we can try and we lead them to water and we lead them to water, but maybe they won't, you know, ever quite get there and and how do you find some kind of middle ground with them um, in those tensions. I think the other thing that jumped out um, from this uh, little sister as well, that's something that I've, thought a lot about and I wonder if you have two Clem is like how do we how do we make sure that it stops with us and we don't create like awful narratives in our families for our children which I don't Mm. have any answers to and I don't have any children right now they're alive um but it's something that I do think about a lot because I I don't I don't I want it to stop with me Mm. this is the the terrible uh, you know pressure and reality of parenting is that you know you you spend your whole life prior to having children complaining bitterly about the mistakes that your parents made with you and then if you become a parent yourself you realize fuck Philip Larkin was right it it was Philip Larkin who wrote 
if they fuck you up, your mum and dad, they may not mean to, but they do, and fill you with the faults they had and save some extra just for you. Um, you know, parenting is a parenting. If you if you if you're concerned with parenting well, and if you are concerned, as you say, with stopping that, you know, the writing of narratives that are unfair, then it's an incredibly torturous existence because you know at some point you have to give your children something to complain about you later but hopefully it's just a small enough thing that it won't permanently damage them and I did think that actually as you said listening to this that you're right like cynically but probably realistically she's not going to be able to change the way that her mother has the the way that her mother views her and that clearly her mother had fault in responding to her own experience when she was growing up you know this is not a blameless person no one is blameless so instead of thinking how can she repair her relationship with her mother now as I potentially suggested and you're right to call me out on that um I guess accept that she may be in a tricky situation with a teenage boy at the moment because teenagers will always look for someone else to excuse Mm -hmm. them and to to unleash them from their parents kind of grip and the grandmother is fulfilling that very strongly for this boy right now so the best thing maybe that this little sister can do is to, as hard as it is, to just make sure that she keeps those really open lines of communication with her son and creates a space that he can always come back to um, and lets him know that no matter what happens now, she'll be there for him in a way that she perhaps feels no one was there for her. I think that's a really good point because I, I, I wonder if her experience with like my experience which is that part of the reason um abuse happened or or bad you know potentially um harmful responses to abuse continued to happen afterwards was that line to my parents wasn't open I could never have gotten to them um and so you know if there's if there's one thing we can maybe not do unto our children is to make sure no matter what happens they feel like they can come and it won't just be them being told off. Like the lines of communication are open with empathy and sympathy and you'll be heard and you'll be looked after and you will be loved. What we all need to be a lot more conscious of, and so this is for all parents listening as well or people who would like to become parents, is that we we resist that urge to write the narratives in our own families, to decide that this is the cast of characters in the TV show that is the Millers or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, this is the youngest child plays the role of the the attention seeker and our oldest child is the one who's the people pleaser. And, and just actually let children discover and be who they are without you placing them into any kind of mm. box or expectation. Because as you and I both know, then you end up conforming to that and feeling really unseen. Yes, and let them change. Let them yeah. become completely different people through their life. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. From a young age, I've always loved tattoos and for over half of my life, I've dreamed of inking my body. However, like many people, I have parents that disapprove of tattoos. My problem is that now at 30 years of age, I still don't have a single tattoo because of a very deep fear of my mother's disapproval. Whenever the topic of tattoos is brought up, my mum resorts to what I perceive as emotional blackmail, threats, crying, silent treatment. She cannot articulate why she doesn't want me to have a tattoo beyond, 
you will ruin your skin and look ugly when you're old. We have no religious or cultural background that explicitly forbids tattoos. While I was living in her house, I was respectful of her house rules, but even now that I'm on my own, uh, that I'm in my own home and financially independent, I still feel immense guilt about the thought of getting inked. I genuinely believe that a tattooed body would be a true representation of my inner self. I actually feel jealous when I see tattooed people because of the freedom that they claim by expressing themselves through their body art. Even my tattooed partner can sometimes trigger this jealous feeling. I feel like this is a somewhat trivial problem, but I very honestly think about it almost daily and feel that it slightly embitters me towards my mum. I don't want to feel that way because she's a fantastic woman and I dearly love her. I feel disappointed in myself for not standing up for myself and claiming my own body. Do I or don't I get a tattoo? How can I best approach this topic with my mum in a productive way? I would appreciate any advice from some big sisters. Big sister Gemma Carey. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I guess I've never had a whole lot of respect for house rules. I got my first tattoo at 16 and, you know what, it really pissed off my parents and it pissed off my mum. And the funny thing is that particular tattoo I got removed 10 or 15 years later and then my mum was sad and she said she missed it. <laughs> you just sometimes with mothers you just can't win um yeah it feels to me like there's obviously a lot more going on here than just the tattoo and maybe it's being you know it's being expressed through the tattoo um I don't doubt what this little sister is saying about thinking that her mother is fantastic and loving her dearly um but I do wonder if they're within that that there seems to be a sense here of not just wanting to be, not just wanting to disappoint through the expression of body art, but not wanting to disappoint at all. She did say in her in her email, which I slightly condensed, but she did say that she's a big people pleaser and that she thinks that being a people pleaser is what is underpinning uh, this desire to not upset her mother. But it sort of seems to me that her mother knows that and is perhaps exploiting the situation. I mean, what really, what difference does it really make to her mother whether or not she, you know, engages in any kind of body modification? It's not her body and she's a grown woman. Mm. I think also, like, it's that thing of viewing your life and your life choices through the eyes of your parents all the time. And there is, I, I don't wish it on anyone and I'm sure you don't either, Clem, to have your parents die and other parents become estranged from you um but I, I often say to friends one day you're all going to join me on my island your parents are going to die it will and what do you want to have done or not done in your life at that point when they're gone and you're not living your life through their eyes anymore because they're not here um do you want to just live your life for you in which case start now mm. Mm, that's such good advice. I mean, and it's similar to something that I say, not through the lens of parenting or, you know, pleasing parents, but often through, uh, you know, often through discussing what women tolerate in relationships, particularly when they have relationships with men. What story do you want to tell yourself in 10 years' time about the life that you were living now? And do you want to wake up at 50? You know, a lot of the women who I speak to are in their 30s. Do you want to wake up maybe with small children as well, which definitely puts pressure on a relationship? What do you want to do when you wake up at 50 and look at the life that you have? Do you want it to be a life where you lived in service to other people constantly and that you made sure everyone else was happy all the time at the expense of your own happiness? Or do you want to, you know, to sort of 
quote, dead poet society, which if you're a woman in your 30s, you fucking loved as a teenager. You want to get to the end of your life and suck, realize that you sucked the marrow out and that you carpe diemed the shit out of it and you did what you wanted and you took risks and you, and some of those risks were bad and you had bad experiences, but you learned from them. I mean, we can't live ourselves, we can't live our lives wrapped up in cotton wool and protecting ourselves from everything that might harm us, but also everything that might liberate us. We also can't live our lives wrapped up in cotton wool from everything that might harm or upset our parents. Exactly. I'm, I'm curious that she has a tattooed partner and what her mother might think of that, you know. Is she also having to field criticisms about him or um, what is it, what is it that, why is it so important? This is what I would say to the little sister. Ask your mother why is it so important that you live your life in a way that she deems acceptable and you know, the, and the other practical thing that you can do as well is just be a little bit of a risk taker, you know. It might be difficult, but go and get a tiny, the very first tattoo I got was the, a tiny little apple that I got on my left wrist and I I had wanted to get a tattoo before that, but I chickened out and um, I knew that my parents wouldn't be thrilled, but I also didn't care, but I, I also knew that they wouldn't like disown me or anything like that. Um, and I got a little tattoo of an apple on my wrist and I was like, well, I just love it. And I had all these weird rules at the, at, you know, when I was start, first started getting tattoos, I was like, I'm only going to get something if it really means something deeply personal to me, it has to mean something. And I'll get it if it's discreet or I'll get it if it looks good. Or what. And then I was just like, oh, I'm just going to get whatever I want. You know, you do have to realise that once you get your first tattoo, you won't stop and you probably will end up with a sleeve or something like that. I think also very few people start off, I think most people start off with the discreet tattoo um, and, and build up to it. I think one one thing that because um, I I kept getting tattoos and and my mum kept getting upset by them it didn't matter what age it was um, and I remember I got I have one on my on my ankle and it's a constellation but it's a constellation of life events so each little symbol mm. means something different that happened in my life and and when I got it my mum was like oh no you got another tattoo and I talked her through it and I was like this is this is what each symbol means and then. Because actually she had to sort of stop responding to, I don't like the look of ink on skin, but she had to engage with, you know, a life story. She went, mm. oh, I really like that now. Um, and so I could kind of bring her around. So, the, yeah, there's middle grounds you can find sometimes as well. Uh, and, yeah, just to wrap this one up as well, I'll leave you little sister with this, that um, I've spoken to quite a few women in their 50s and 60s who were, their 50s and 60s when they got their first tattoo and they didn't they hadn't necessarily thought about getting one their whole life but something happened in that period of life you know maybe they had a relationship end and they were liberated from you know having to look after someone else or their children left home or either way what it was was for them was a full expression of their life and who they were as fully realized humans and they bloody loved them and they saw them as being I would say as well in that age demographic they probably saw it as being some kind of um fuck you to the mores that they grew up with and what was expected of them as women which you're clearly still being subjected to by your your mother's expectations and they I've never met anyone who regretted taking 
a choice like that that they wanted, even if they didn't love the way that the tattoo turned out, they didn't they didn't regret doing it. And I just feel like you just have to remember at the end of the day that it's your life, and your mother may be upset, but she's not gonna she's not gonna cut you off over this. And if she does insist on talking about it, then you, that's at the point where you need to have that firm conversation. As, it, as you said, Gemma, in the earlier question, just put the ball down and say, I'm not going to engage with this conversation on this level. I'm not going to engage with your accusations or with your guilt tripping. This is my life. This is my body. I've done this. I've made this choice and you don't have to live with it. And if you don't like it, then I won't see you. That's what I would do. Okay, last question of the day. Left Out Sister writes, I'm the middle of three sisters that grew up in a household with a dominating physically and emotionally abusive mother. Her violence was always a huge secret and the shame and embarrassment lingers still, and she remains a mean and manipulative bully. The worst of her behaviour was always directed at me as I was the only one that ever confronted her. In the last five years, I've made real strides in only engaging with my mother on my terms to protect myself and take back some of the control. This means I rarely take her calls and generally avoid family events. My mother has used this and done a great job of painting me as the troublemaker. What it also means is that I've lost any relationship with my two sisters and an emotional relationship with most of my family. They're all besties and I'm really jealous. They seem to have totally forgiven or forgotten my mother's behaviour as the three of them are thick as thieves. I really resent this. How do I raise this with them? I know I'm probably projecting some of my rage towards my mother into them, but I feel so betrayed. I know anything I say to them will go straight back to my mother and be twisted into her next round of emotional attacks. Should I even bother? Any advice you have would be most welcome. Gemma, this seems like a question explicitly designed for you and your expertise. Oh, this made me so sad for left out sister. I have so much empathy over this. There is just something uniquely shitty about feeling alone within your own family um, that I deeply relate to. Sorry, I'm sorry, left out sister. I'm sorry you're going through that. I think when it comes to that question of like, do you confront the other sisters? Do you bring it all up? I think it's helpful to take a few steps back and think about, well, what is it? Do you want to achieve out of doing that? Because you're you're opening yourself up for more hurt and betrayal when you do it um, because you might not get the response that you want or that you desperately, you know, need in this deep part of you that wants to be loved and accepted by your family. Um, And then I think after you've thought about that question, then you also have to think about what do you think is actually possible? So what do you want out of confronting them and then, it's a bit like um, the first question that we had. How far along, you know, do you think that they can move? How transformative do you think it can be? Um, I think going to your point earlier as well, Clem, that it's a very vulnerable thing to to try and confront something like this, and I think it would be safer to do it with a counsellor there. And I think that between siblings, that probably often goes better than between parents because you don't have that, like, I think parents uh, often have that thing of when you you bring something to them, they have a lot of guilt, their own guilt and shame about was I 
a bad parent? Was I not the best parent I could be? And then it taps into all of that and they react and react. And, and you don't really have that with siblings. It's a fundamentally different relationship. And I, and I do wonder if you can kind of, there's more opportunity to dig into that with a counsellor in that dynamic. But I, I think you, you've got to be fortified and ready um, with clear objectives about what you want to get out of it. Um, and then also realistic about what might and might not be possible. Mm. I think that you're right. And, you know, just rereading this as well, um, you know, we were talking, we have talked a lot in this episode about the narrative of the family and the characters that people are expected Mm -hmm. to play and the roles that they get cast into. And this actual sister is the middle of her three sisters. And I think that the middle child, obviously there are certain, um, depending on which order you are in, in the sibling system, there can be different dynamics expected of you or different, you can fall into a different dynamic purely because you're not the one, you're not the eldest that had has been doted on, but you're also not the youngest who's then given free reign and protected. So I think a lot of middle siblings can end up feeling like they kind of get lost in the mix a little bit. Now, she also says that she was the only one who stood up and confronted her mother, so she experienced the brunt of the abuse, um, which obviously has carried its own scars. And I think in terms of thinking of that dynamic, what can end up happening is if you observe these patterns of behaviour in a parent or in a family member and you, as maybe her elder sister and younger sister, did as a protective mechanism, don't confront them so you kind of slide on by or you don't get you don't get the worst of it, then it's very easy to convince yourself that it's all okay and that you, 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 they can become trapped in this kind of pattern of behaviour where they're like, well, I don't want to rock the boat because I know what this person is capable of. And so why are you continuing to confront her? Why are you continue, continuing to cause problems because you know what she'll do? I mean, obviously I don't agree with that assessment. I'm just saying that I think that if if they were to follow your advice, which is to go to counselling, then maybe they could tease some of those things out because it feels to me like what's going on here might also be a lot of protection, protection for themselves mm-hmm. and also protection, protecting in a weird way, protecting the abuser so that the monster doesn't come out. I think so. I, I, it's not a dynamic I have in my family, but I do um, some older friend um, from a while ago who uh, had a similar thing where there were a physically abusive mother to the youngest child and the two older siblings just kind of denied that abuse. And I think that they were doing it for that exact reason, which is I don't want it to turn on me. And if we just side with the abuser, then we say, say, stay safe, stay safe. Um, like, like there's quite a primitive kind of little kid response to it that they, they were still enacting as adults, which is like, you do everything when you just stay safe from things. And if that means you side with your mum, cause she's actually can be the, the dangerous one. Um, then that's what you do. And maybe they've never actually analysed that before and their behaviour and where that's coming from. And if they would want to pick it, they might be able to start to relate to left out sister a bit differently. I will preface this by saying that I don't come from an abusive family. So the situation that I'm describing is not one of abuse, emotional or physical. But, you know, there's been 
there are dynamics in my family as there are in any family and and some of those dynamics have played out since my mother died and my father remarried and as I said earlier we're not the kind of family that was ever encouraged to sit around and share our deep feelings or you know express our our hurt you know we had to get on with things and get over things um, and I'm, I, it may surprise you to learn this, Gemma, but I was the fiercest one in the, in the siblings. <laughs> um, I was very, very committed to social justice. Um, and I'm the youngest as well, but I've always been the one in, in my sibling group who kind of was the dog with the bone, you know, that I would, I would bare my teeth and I'd go and lash out. And even the way that you describe it, is sort of an absorption of the way that it's been described to you, that you, you're you the problem causer, you're the troublemaker, you're the one who always has to turn everything into a fight. When actually I just saw it as like standing up for myself and standing up for my siblings. And I remember saying to them in the last couple of years, we had a not a big falling out, but we did have a big fight because we we all shared these same feelings about the way that our family dynamic had changed and shared the same feelings about what was expected of us in terms of basically swallowing any feelings that we had. And yet when it came time to actually talking to the person involved in that, I was the only one who ever did it. And they would sort of rally around that person and join in with this idea that I was, I was the troublemaker. And it was, it felt to me like such a huge betrayal because I would say, I know that you feel this way. I can't be the only one who's out there on the front line pushing this fight, you know, or or like trying to change the dynamic here. You have to back me up. And so we did have that conversation and I kind of, I was able to articulate to them, you are letting me down. You're letting me bear the brunt of all of this and it's not fair. And you have to, you have to back me up as scary as it is. You have to also like lighten that burden for me. Mm. Um, and they luckily in my case they did respond positively to that and they did understand and they acknowledged that that's what they were doing as well, which was really important for me. That's huge. And I think siblings are a little bit more open to that than parents are. Um, uh-huh. But all, so I don't, sometimes you can shift it for a bit because, again, I think all this comes back to that that dominant, unbreakable, toxic family narrative that can't be shifted for whatever reason that's become established. Uh-huh. Um, and sometimes I, what I found is that there are critical moments and events where you can break it, but then it reforms. So when my mum was dying, I could break it at times because I was the one who was um, handling the bulk of the kind of really confronting medical stuff. Um, or I broke it when my father had an affair and I cracked the absolute shits at him and told him I was abused as a child and suddenly there was this period of time where I flipped our relationship and it was really different. But it, over time, three, year, three and a half years later, it's all just shifted back to where it was before. So there is something, yeah, I think, I think you can, sometimes you can get those like moments of clarity and, and you've brought people onto, you know, to see the fuller picture um, but you can lose it again. They can, they can just go back to what they know and what's ingrained. Um, so I think maybe also recognising that that could happen or it's a process where you might have to keep cracking it open in different ways again and again um, and that they might shift back to. Because especially I think in this case where it sounds like it comes from, you know, 
I'm not a psychologist. I've spent a lot of time with a trauma psychologist. Um, those things that we develop from when you're young, my psychologist calls them um, your little people inside you that are that's so strong. They're still reacting in the way that they were when you were a three-year-old you and four-year-old you and eight-year-old you to keep you safe and your primary kind of concern at that age is just to keep you safe. Like that's kind of what's being enacted now into adulthood. Um, and that that's so powerful, right? It's been with you since you were a tiny little kid and it's kept you safe for so, so, so long. And get, letting go of that and changing that is actually kind of scary and, and might feel dangerous to your little people inside you. Um, so I think just being, which kind of comes out, I think the questions I, I posed at the start is, what do, you, what do you want to achieve and what do you think is possible? And and it might it might change for a bit and it might go back and then you change it again for a bit. Um, but I think I know that in the past I've thought and been guilty of thinking like if I can just get them to bloody well see, it'll all be different. And mm. what the time is, well, I can get them to see for a few months and then I'll lose it again. Um, so just being a little bit kind of tempered, I think, in expectations. It really makes me think of your response to the middle question about, um, you know, you said that you were cynical about the prospect of therapy and I think that's a really realistic, with that particular woman, that's a really realistic uh, kind of feeling to have um, because you're right, like we do have all of these kind of daydreams or desires for how we want our family to shift into this this family that we've always wanted or we want to, we want to fix this one little thing or, you know, those, those little people inside are still there craving love and craving acceptance. And the thing is that in the people who hurt us either through active behaviour or just through dismissive behaviour, they all have their own little people inside as well that are the recipients of whatever bullshit and baggage they were subjected to growing up. And it's all just we're all just sort of moving through the world with these tiny little people who've not been paid enough attention to and not been nurtured in exactly the right way, maybe because it is impossible to nurture us all in exactly the right way. But what I think one of the most powerful things that we can do for ourselves, and it's so heartbreaking and it's so difficult, but is to genuinely kind of move towards a place where we accept that we probably will never have what it is that we've been craving and wanting and that that even the even the idea of it is a fantasy because these people are not characters in our book but they're people in their own right and they will respond to to life in their own way and and oftentimes that will disappoint us yeah and not to give away the end of my own book but that, I think that's, you know, have traveling a very, very long way with a lot of these things in very complex ways where I landed was that I had to try and find, ultimately had to try and find ways to find it in myself and recreate yeah. it in my own life rather than keep pushing and pushing and pushing against a family that wasn't going wasn't gonna to be the storybook I wanted. It's very complicated, you know, families, and that's that's the most simplistic thing that you can say about them, but... You, I think I think adjusting our expectations, and this is this is for everyone who's asked a question. All of the little sisters today is that adjusting our expectations and taking what you said, Gemma, about what is it that you want to achieve and what is it that you think will be possible, and really wrestling with both of those questions seriously and coming to terms with coming to an an answer for both of them that you will be happy with, mm. that you can be 
satisfied with, I think is the key. And understanding as well that you probably will never be fully satisfied with it. So you have to just figure out a way to be okay with it. been listening to the big sister hotline a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back your big sisters you can find us on apple podcasts spotify Podchaser, google podcast and everywhere else you look for great content and you can also listen to all the back episodes if you do like it then please would you consider rating and reviewing it because it's really nice to have the feedback first and foremost but also it helps to put the podcast into the line of sight of other little sisters and my one goal in life right now is to create a giant army of little sisters who are prepared to tear down the fucking patriarchy if you enjoy the hotline you can support the ongoing making of it at my patreon which is www.patreon.com forward slash clementine ford where pledges of more than ten dollars per month receive access to a bonus monthly episode of the hotline only available for download to subscribers if you have a question you'd like answered you can submit it to big sister hotline at gmail.com and don't worry all submissions are treated as totally anonymous we're big sisters and we've got your back Gemma carey writer, associate professor, giver of good wisdom, author of the new memoir, No Matter Our Wreckage. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Big Sister Hotline today. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I had a wonderful time. Thank you for having me. Can you just, uh, before we go, just uh, some few brief words on when is the book out? Is it out now? When can people see you next? Uh, How can people follow, follow your literary events? It is out in, I think it's out this weekend. It's out on the 1st of September. It will be in bookshops. You can pre-order it now from your local indie bookshop, but also from Booktopia and all of the big places online. Um, We haven't got the literary events locked in yet because of damn COVID, Um, but you can follow me on Twitter and all of that will be there. And my Twitter handle is at gem, G-E-M, Carey, C-A-R-E-Y. And so everything will get posted up there that's coming up. Great. And I'll include that in the show notes as well. And very quickly, I know that this is the worst question to ask writers, but you did mention it earlier on. And uh, uh, what book are you writing now? The book I'm writing now is a collection of essays about um, how to survive complex, difficult grief and trials in your life. Uh, So different ones that were explored in this book, ones that came before it, ones that came after it, um, yes, and, and how how you can find a way through things that you might not feel that you can get through, but believe me, you can. I know that that's a, a terrible thing sort of to ask when you're promoting a new book, but it is a reality of writing as well, is that for you this book was finished a long time ago and you're on to the next thing it's it's this weird disjointed process of publishing a book isn't it but uh listeners can purchase no matter our wreckage from their favorite local independent bookstore um it is a beautiful memoir exploring many difficult things but also really ultimately kind of ending in a very i don't want to say uplifting because that minimizes what it is but you, you know you touch on the complexities of life and hope and 
grief and as we've said today like writing your own story and uh, I'm very appreciative that you've come on to the podcast today so thank you very much Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead, the Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.